I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life which surrounds him. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daylight of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that even amid today's mortar bursts and whining bullets, there is still hope for a brighter tomorrow. I believe that wounded justice, lying prostrate on the blood-flowing streets of our nations, can be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men. Those are the words of Martin Luther King accepting the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Today is the day that we will celebrate his birthday this year. So I thought, what better to talk about than about the person we will be celebrating, but in an honest and new way of looking at a hero about whom we have all had some very, very serious misconceptions. Let's talk about it. This is Logan Grendel, and you're with the Focused on Infinity podcast. At any rate, let's get right into it. So Martin Luther King, for us growing up, at least for me and for, I would say, for most of us, was, broadly speaking, a relatively uncontroversial figure. In fact, he's one of the people that is most often thought of as a purely benevolent and widely accepted to be just great and well-loved person. There are streets named after him in basically every major city. We have a, a holiday celebrating his birthday. But he was actually a much more complicated and even more powerful figure than we realize. This is a man who had a letter written to him by the FBI, which essentially was telling him to kill himself. Now, some of you may have heard this, some of you may have not, but before you just dismiss it as some sort of conspiracy theory, just look it up for yourself. I'll say this a lot on this podcast. One of the biggest things that we have now over the past is that if someone said something that sounded questionable, back in the day, you'd have to actually put in major footwork to look it up. But now that we have the internet, at your fingers is essentially the accumulated knowledge of humankind, right? So you can just look it up for yourself and verify what is being said. Uh, or confirm that it is baseless. Obviously, this is a skill that you need to hone because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And unfortunately, the amount of misinformation is growing because one of the best ways to destroy the good is to attack the, the very notion of truth itself. That's one of the, the hardcore right's biggest tactics. And that's to actually attack the nature of truth itself because as the saying goes, reality itself has a left-wing bias. As social creatures... As living organisms, the world is not a place where competition and killing off each other is the way that most organisms go about it. Now, of course, nature is metal as fuck and doesn't really care about any individual organism. But by and large, all animals, especially social animals, seek cooperation to further their species. And even more than within their own species, if we can have mutualistic or commensalistic relationships with other animals, with other species... You see it all the time in nature that species work together for their mutual benefit, right? And even if you are, even if there is a, an animal that we look at as prey or that another animal looks at as prey, it makes no sense to eradicate that animal completely, if only for the, the simple fact that you're destroying your entire ability to continue to live. So the way that we think of competition, we need to constantly rethink. But anyway, his unfavorable rating was immense. 45, only 45% of black Americans agreed with what he was saying at the time of his death. That is a massive, massive unpopularity rating for someone who is so revered today, right? And before that reverence to happen, what had to be done was a serious whitewashing of his history. In fact, the Martin Luther King we know today is essentially a historical. Let me start right out of the gate with this. Martin Luther King was a democratic socialist. Now, I'm not making things up, and I'm not using conjecture to say that, right? This is not me putting some sort of ideology onto the man that he did not believe in. These are in his own words. Call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children. I'm going to give you another quote. And one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you are raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, 
you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. And one more. I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism started out with a noble and high motive, but like most human systems, it fell victim to the very thing it was revolting against. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. He is not in any way ambiguous about any of this. But why? Right? Why has his socialist nature been erased? Why do we think of him purely as a civil rights leader and not just a, a leader, a great thinker, a great thinker in economics and in government, as well as just on civil rights? Well, the answer to that question, like most questions, has a, a manifold answer. It has a complex answer. People use the word nuanced too much, but one of the reasons that cliches become cliches is because they're often on target, and there is a lot of nuance in the answer that has to come to that question. Now, obviously, he was 100% for the freedom of black folks in this country. But unlike some other black leaders, he was not a black nationalist. He was not for an independent black state. He was 100% into the idea of black people integrating into the country in which they had been born, which just makes sense. That's usually the most simple and elemental thing that goes behind being a citizen of a country, is that you were born there, right? And there is a, a discussion about birthright citizenship, which in itself is just such a ridiculous, often inherently racist, or not just racist, but basically xenophobic in some way, right? If somebody can be born in your country and yet not be a citizen, there is something that you are intentionally othering them with that has nothing to do with their birth. So even if they are born into your country, which means that they're going to grow up with the same ideas and habits and culture, language, etc., etc. Even if they're born within your borders, there's something about them which others them, in your mind, from their birth. Birthright citizenship, whenever you hear that phrase, understand that you're talking to someone who is probably a white nationalist. That's just the fact of the matter, right? Why they are or what the underpinnings of, of the reason they got there is, totally different question. But if someone says that, they are almost definitely a white nationalist. There should be, birthright citizenship is redundant or should at least be considered to be redundant. So the reason that Martin Luther King's first struggles were for the freedom of black people, it wasn't just because he was a black person or because he wanted black people to be doing better. Of course, that was the idea. But in all his discussions, in all the things that he speaks about regarding just love and of peace and of unity, they, they were never isolated to just being for black people. It was always about all people unifying, getting together and doing the best that they could to make the world around them better for as many people as possible. And marginalizing those struggles as just being for black people, which is uh, unfortunately something that black thinkers often do. We're going to get to that later. But marginalizing his ideas to being just for a small sliver of the population is completely wrong and essentially ahistorical. So let's actually think about why he started with black people. Well, one of the biggest reasons is that black people in this country, then and now, whenever you're talking about poverty, whenever you're talking about disenfranchisement, Whenever you're talking about any of the things that a poor person could face in this country as a result of their poverty, you might be talking about white people. In fact, you often are, and perhaps, if you think about it, more often are, but you're definitely talking about what black people are facing. One of the reasons that slavery itself was so, and I mean American slavery, was so successful and easy to implement was because people were imported that did not look like the people who were enslaving them. I'm sure I've talked about this before in brief, but in the past, people used to enslave their, their next door, the next town over, the next tribe over. But it wasn't generational slavery. You would defeat them in some sort of battle, you would enslave them, but then if they intermingled with the people of your tribe or society or whatever, then their children were just like you. But the most I mean, ingenious is a terrible use of the word, I mean, because it's evil through and through, but the most effective and in, in technically ingenious thing about black slavery was that you had an automatic group of people that was easier to spot, right? It's easier to spot differences in skin tone. It's basically hacking one of the things that humans, humans use their eyes more than anything else. 
even a lot of our language is based around seeing, you know, our, my point of view, the way I see things, et cetera, et cetera. Our language has been built around seeing because it is so crucial to the way that we, pun intended, view the world. So if you had a group of people taken thousands of miles away from where they came from, but who looked different than the people who were running the show, well, then you could continually know who the, the slaves were. So that is one of the, the most, the most basic reasons that slavery was able to persist for so long. And you combine that, that just difference in looks with a bunch of bad science, a bunch of eugenics. You get a bunch of scientists to say like, oh yes, there are, there are definitely differences between the races. And while black people might be strong, they just don't have what it takes in terms of brain power. And that's why they're relegated to a slave class which obviously is bullshit, but one of the things that we have to confront in our own minds is even that some of those tropes still exist in the minds of, of ourselves and of otherwise intelligent people. It's really, really hard to completely unwrite all of the things that you might think about other races because it's so pervasive in society, even, you know, even after slavery ended and the civil rights movement happened, et cetera, et cetera. And also let's keep in mind that it's only been 60 years since Martin Luther King did what he was doing, since the civil rights movement got the, the major legislative gains that it was able to get, which have since been rolled back in a lot of ways, but it hasn't been a long time. And if you look at the entire history of the, you know, the, the project that is America, we're talking 500 to 600 years of a country, 500 of which were with enslaved people, right? When people try and say that the problems between the races are, it's over, we got to stop talking about it. This is a person who is not using their whole brain or is trying to sell you a bill of goods, right? Even just looking at numerically the history of this country, you're trying to tell me that America is not racist when for only at most 20% of its existence, there were slaves? Get out of here with that. You know, I, I heard a comedian say slavery was two people ago, right? That's not a long time. And even, and, you know, and even less than that with Jim Crow and all the other, with all the hideous disenfranchisement of black people and people of color in, in general that persisted right up until, you know, 1967, 68, it's impossible to say that the years after slavery were all free and easy because they weren't in any, in, by any stretch of the imagination. And in the years since those legislative gains, there has been a lot of external change. But meanwhile, the gears were still churning. And then you get the prison industrial complex, which has led us to the point where there are more black people now under institutional control than there were slaves at the height of slavery. The reason I'm saying this is not just about race. It's about understanding the world that we live in genuinely, really grokking what kind of world we live in, what kind of country we live in, what kind of history we are fighting against if we want to live in the world that we believe or believed that we do. The first step in doing that, and that was one of Martin Luther King's works, was to get voting power to all people. And the people who did not have the power to vote were black people at the time, especially. When we got black people the right to vote, that was not just a victory for black folks. That was a victory for every American. And this is something, and this is one of the reasons that he is such a hero, because a lot of the disenfranchisement that was happening to black people like poll taxes and things of that nature, those were also affecting poor white people. And one of the reasons that people were fighting so hard against him, I mean, obviously you have your racists who just were like, you know, thought, still thought black people were inferior, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also have your, your staunch capitalists who saw that the more poor people could vote in a country that is supposedly built on democracy, well, then the, the more anti-capitalist legislation would be passed the more populist movements would come into power. Blocking black people from voting was largely, as it has always been, an economic issue for the people that have a lot of power and a lot of money. Some people believe that class and money is the only issue, and that's just not the case, but everything always does come down to money. Because we live in a capitalist society, right? It comes down to money or it comes down to power. And those two things are linked often, but they're not always linked because where power really rests, especially in a country that has democratic forms, small d democratic forms, power will always rest with the greatest number of people that can be mobilized 
to fight for something. And when we say that reality has a left-wing bias, so does any democratic country. If you don't prevent people from being able to engage with the system, you will always get more gains for the people because that is the thing that most people will fight for. It's totally simple. And a lot of the language around it trips some people up because we still, a lot of us, even some, I mean, lots of liberals, actually, I was talking to some, you know, big Democratic Party supporting folks who are, I mean, they're just lovely people and I love them to bits. But when talking to them about, say, you know, presidential candidates, if the word socialism comes up, they basically shut down. Like if you were talking to someone in the religious right or an evangelical and you mentioned the word abortion, they just, their brains shut off. And they don't realize it's because they feel like it's a boogeyman. They have really bought this. They're afraid of a word, honestly. They're afraid of a word. And not only are they, and, and it's funny because they're afraid of the word socialism, but they also mindlessly defend the word capitalism without any sort of trenchant understanding of what either of those words mean. And more importantly, not just what they mean, but how they actually play in the world. Little side note, never be afraid of a word of any word. One of the things I say a lot, especially when I'm discussing uh, magic and spiritualism and occult things, which I keep promising I'm going to talk about in an episode and I will, I will fulfill that promise. But to me, the first, deepest, and most powerful form of magic is communication, is talking. Simply using words by basically moving around some air and my vocal cords, I can take an abstract idea out of the ether and push it through the air into your ears and put something into your brain, right? Nothing physical is exchanged per se, right? But your your world might be changed just hearing my words or someone's words. And to me, there's no more awe-inspiring and wonderful magic than, than the fact that we can just talk to one another and literally change our physical reality. We got from living in huts or just without huts, living just, you know, in, in forests to space travel, largely based on words and our ability to communicate things with one another. That's magical in a way that is that, that really hits if you think about it. But at any rate, people are afraid of these words or, or they lionize these words. Now, capitalism. Let's, let's actually for a second talk about what capitalism means. Capitalism is not trade. Let me repeat that. Capitalism is not the same thing as trade. Capitalism is not commerce. And no one who advocates for a different kind of system is saying that there should be no commerce, that you shouldn't be able to make things and improve your, your, your current state of living by making things and selling or trading them to someone else for, for something of value and trying to increase your own personal value to some extent. No one is saying, get rid of commerce. No longer can anyone make anything. No longer can anyone innovate anything. And to say that that's the case is ridiculous. That also means that capitalism is not just the business. What capitalism is, is the ability to accrue things that have value and use those things to make more value without work. It's in the name. Basically, the headline is the article when it comes to capitalism. And so many people who defend capitalism don't own any fucking capital. I saw this meme the other day. It was like, oh, yeah, you're, you think you're a capitalist. Where's your factory? You know, what means of production do you own? No, you don't own shit. It's just that someone has told you that we are a capitalist country, gosh darn it. And you've got to defend our right to be capitalists without telling you what that means. Or that that experiment of capitalism does not involve your broke ass. Now, in terms of socialism, socialism and communism have been demonized in this country so much as to be a literal boogeyman for grown-ups. After the Second World War, uh, during which, by the way, we were allied with Stalin and with Russia, and with whom we collaborated in order to defeat the Nazis, okay? So, First of all, we got to get the idea that America did all the work in World War II and the Russians are just as, just as big baddies as the Nazis. Like, nobody's here for Stalin apologism for the fucked up things that he did, but there is, it's just a fact that Russia did the lion's share of the work in defeating Nazism. But anyway, we're not even talking about Stalinism because Stalinism is not socialism. 
there was a huge concentration of power in a small number of hands. That by nature is not socialism. But there has been a conflation of the authoritarian type of communism that Stalin and some others represent with socialism and with socialist programs. And why? Because it is easy to do so by lumping it all together and not giving people any explanation other than those reds are bad, right? This whole McCarthy era terror of communism still poisons us. And it's a poison that is it's basically poisoning us against our own interests. Once you, once you talk about something that is socialistic or even something that is communistic, say like Cuba, right? Fun fact, Cuba has much better health outcomes and a much lower infant mortality rate and a better educational rate than we do in America. But that is something that you would not ever hear. When someone talks about Cuba, all you hear is, oh my gosh, communism and the people there are in breadlines all day. And, and people honestly believe that. They really believe this fairy story bullshit. We have to immediately eradicate our unjustified and undigested fear of words that surround ideas because it's the ideas. It's the magic of ideas that we're trying to get at in discussing things and in using words in the first place, right? So when Martin Luther King was talking about socialism, democratic socialism, he was actually talking about something a little bit different than had happened before because he also criticizes communism pretty heavily. He does it in the same breath. He had what I consider to be the most advanced understanding of what was good about each political system. And that is why he landed at what he called democratic socialism, because it was democratic in its forms, meaning it was based on voting, based on the will of the people, based on getting more people involved in the political process, getting everyone involved in the political process, but with a sharp eye and a deep need to make sure that the needs of the people were being met, not that there was an ability to accrue unchecked amounts of wealth. There will always be people who are just more driven than other people. Like, I'm kind of one of them. It's hard for me not to do new things and try and, you know, take on new challenges in some way or the other. And that's how I'm always going to be. And I, it's something that I, I love about myself. But there are also some people who kind of just want to live, right? They just want to do things they enjoy, eat some good food, et cetera, et cetera. You know, do the hobbies that they love. And that's also fine. And one of the problems with capitalism and the way that we think about it is that the only thing that people are valued for is what they can accrue, how much they can accrue, what they provide, whether it's looks or whether it's money, it's something that can be commodified and packaged. That is what a society that functions around the idea and the need of capital does to people's thinking. We should obviously be looking at something that has a little bit more of a socialist ideology to it. And you can call it whatever you want to in your head. You can call it populist, you can call it something more for the people, you can call it workers, whatever you want to call it in your head or when you're talking to someone so that they don't immediately shut down when they hear certain words. What we're talking about is who's in charge and for whom are we working? There is no way, unless you are a monarchist or a hardcore religious, an Abrahamic fundamentalist, will you believe that everything we do is for some king. Why on earth would we be here on this planet together to work for someone who is going to be extracting not only the value, but our ability to enjoy the world and the life that we, that we have? That just doesn't make sense. But we have, we've taken some of that to heart. Way too much of it, in fact. to step into a little bit of a different area of our discussion of Martin Luther King and bring up what I think is his most important and most relevant speech or piece of writing. And I think it's really showing its head right now in our modern day politics and in, to be quite frank, what is standing between us and a better world. This is from Letter from a Birmingham Jail. 
First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Why is that my favorite piece of writing of his? And why do I think it is one of the more important things to reflect on right now? Let's look at the politics of our day. Let's look at how difficult it is for people to get behind protests of any kind, especially ones that inconvenience them. A lot of the Democratic Party are the white moderate that he warned us about. Why? Because when we say that we need more right now for all people, for black people, for poor people, for the indigenous people who have been suffering for the longest in this country, when we say we need more right now, when we need strong legislation, when we need big change, they say, essentially, how are you going to pay for that, right? What they're saying is, and make no mistake, this is the translation of that every single time. What that means is, that might change things, and my life is okay. So I don't give a shit about your suffering, because my life is pretty good. I can see you're hurting, so let's throw you a few bucks. Maybe give you a little something something. But as far as drastically changing things, so that you might actually have a great shot at life, God forbid the same amount of shot at life as me, no, no, hold on, there's going to be a better time and a better way to do that. Don't be so loud. You know, don't be so strident in the way you're saying these things. I'm going to put it right out there. Joe Biden is the absolute worst form of the white moderate. Okay, this is a person who, by his own admission, loved working with segregationists and loved coming to agreement with segregationists. Now, I do believe that there is much to be gained when the so-called right and left work together, because I don't believe that we are as divided as people seem to think that we are. And a lot of the little issues are things about which, you know, are, are not going to be the meat of the issue. Most of the important things we all do agree on, just as on a human level, right? But when someone is a segregationist, the entire point of their messaging has no merit. It's inherently bad. It is inherently, literally evil. What you're saying is that certain people should be relegated to poor treatment, to less access to services, to less access to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness than others for what is essentially a trick of the light, for what is something that is a condition of birth, something over which they have no control, and also something that has nothing to do with science or fact. There is no reason that they are less worthy of those good things. None. I'm going to cut in to give you actually another little heard quote of, of Martin Luther King. And it's from a book of interviews with Alex Haley from Playboy during the time of Martin Luther King's life. I bought this book a while ago and uh, just recently started reading it and getting into it um, in anticipation of recording this episode. But let me give you a little piece from it. So much of this is gold that I'm going to read a few snippets from it because it's just wonderful and it's not the sort of thing that you see that often when you hear quotes from Martin Luther King. The American Anthropological Association has unanimously adopted a resolution repudiating statements that Negroes are biologically, in innate mental ability, or in any other way inferior to whites. The collective weight and authority of world scientists are embodied in a UNESCO report on races which flatly refutes the theory of innate superiority among any ethnic group. And as far as Negro blood is concerned, medical science finds the same four blood types in all race groups. When the Southern white finally accepts this simple fact, as he eventually must, beautiful results will follow. For we will have come a long way to transforming his master-servant perspective into a person-to-person -person perspective. The Southern white man discovering the non-myth Negro exhibits all the passion of the new convert, 
seeing the black man as a man among men for the first time. The South, if it is to survive economically, must make dramatic changes, and these must include the Negro. People of goodwill in the South, who are the vast majority, have the challenge to be open and honest and to turn a deaf ear to the shrill cries of the irresponsible few on the lunatic fringe. I think and pray they will. Now, he spoke of race in ways that mostly were South-North, as if the North were really any better in most fundamental ways from the South in terms of race. And that's outdated because what he was saying about the South really applies to lots of people in, in, in the North, in New York even. Growing up, I frequently would, was met with surprise from the parents of my school friends. You know, I went to a predominantly extremely wealthy school and meeting some parents and just in discussions with some people, I spoke well and I, you know, I have I used to at least have a good head on my shoulders. And one of the most common reactions to that was not delight, but surprise. And that's because a lot of these people, whether or not they're consciously aware of it, these white moderates who would be in the same room with or would let their children play with a black kid were still somehow surprised that a brown-skinned child was on the same level as their kid. And that should be galling to us because what they believe is literal mythology. And it was a mythology that was created to support black people being enslaved, but it's been around for so long and it wasn't the Nazis who invented eugenics. A little teaser for my upcoming dog episode, Breed Fancy came to rise partially in tandem with pushing bad race science. And the two worked hand in glove because people just were thinking about pure breeding, even pure breeding being a thing, right? And those ideas they viewed as interchangeable between dogs and humans. Some dogs were inherently smarter and better and faster and et cetera, et cetera. And so the same must be true of humans. And even weren't they weren't directly going at it from a, a human race standpoint, that sort of idea inseminated itself into the way people think to the point where, again, otherwise intelligent people still have a little bit of that, that ghost in their heads. Now, the white moderate, and I, what I'd like to do is change his language into my own. Martin Luther King called it the white moderate. I call it the centrist. These are people who, by and large, are doing okay in life by the terms of this system. Usually because of luck. Let's keep it a buck. It's usually because of luck. Because they were born in favorable circumstances and were able to live in this system with a greater amount of ease. And all the exceptions to that just prove the rule, right? For every one person who managed to, through hard work and through pluck, get out of the ghetto, there are a hundred thousand who did not. So the fact that one person got struck by lightning and lived does not mean that you should stand out in a fucking rainstorm, you know, holding a metal pole aloft, thinking you're going to get superpowers or something. You know what I mean? It's just nonsense. And it's nonsense that we believe. And centrist types, they are the type that want to keep things basically as they are. And I think that they are by far more dangerous than people who are on what Martin Luther King called the lunatic fringe, the hardcore racists, the hardcore white nationalists, people who actually want to round up or enslave or kill minorities. Because those people are always going to be a minority. Most people don't want anything to do with killing off or enslaving other people, if only because it's more work for them. I mean, I believe it's because humans are inherently a little bit on the good side of neutral, being, being social species. Most people don't want anything to do with that. Now, you can get them to go along with it, and you can do that relatively easy by spreading bad information, right? And the reason that the centrist is more dangerous than the lunatic fringe is because they will listen to the lunatic fringe and say, well, we're not going to change it that much their way, but we're also not going to change it to give a whole bunch of people more power because, well, then that means I might have less, even though if you look at any of the numbers, it means the opposite. Centrists have bought the mythology of capitalism. They have bought into 
the notion that how much you have is how much you're worth. They think that because they have that nice house, well, things must be great. This must be a way that we're supposed to be living. And if I have this big house, like not everyone can have this big house, right? Like if, if somebody else has more, then I definitely must have less, right? No, no, that is absolutely ludicrous. And what you are doing by in any way standing of the way of the average person getting more power. And when I say the average person, I'm talking in numbers. There are not very many rich people, most Americans. And when I say most Americans, I'm talking like 50% of Americans or they're living paycheck to paycheck or worse. And, and also, let me just put a little, a little thought in your head. Whether you make $40,000 or $140,000, if your wage is dependent on a check, you're still basically living paycheck to paycheck, right? You're making $140,000. You might not think of yourself as poor because, I mean, you're not. I mean, like, like, let's keep it real. But, like, but you still are in a more precarious position and have much more in common with that person making $20,000, $40,000 a year in a wage job than you think. And you need to stop associating yourself with somebody who makes a million, a billion dollars a year because you have nothing in common with those people, not a thing. Everything you have, again, whether you're making $20,000 a year or $100,000 a year, everything you have can evaporate if your job disappears and you can't get another job quickly enough. Blowing the trunk, just like an elephant cup that I'm sipping is filled up with melanin. Migrating work, I need a settlement. Never fuck with niggas just like the government. Head in the hood like I'm Trayvon. Rolling up my sleeves cause I'm bare arms. Bar soon, Marvel niggas, Capcom. You a double low, we can nap on. Mass shooting, crackers shooting from the mass. Wanna take a life, the only thing we have. Hate how we design, we hate what they design. Every fucking day, another hate crime. Every other day, another Taliban. Black on black violence, racial suicide. 12% we in, how can we repent? Why the centrist is a poison to modern discourse. And unfortunately, they have been drastically overrepresented, not only their needs, but in the media. Most of the movies and things that we watch feature people who are living pretty high on the hog. To use, I don't know why I'm using like old school Southern sayings, but whatever. Uh, they're living good, right? These people in these movies, I mean, in any, any movie, you name any movie that's just, any movie that just features some people, you know, that's supposed to represent the average person in America. Any movie. These are, it's, it's probably, they probably live in a big house. They have a car. You never see them wondering about where their next meal is going to come from. You never see them wondering about how they're going to pay bills. You never see them worried about the mundane things of life. And while some of that is just because people just want to tell a story and they don't want to think about that kind of thing, you could tell a story from the point of view of a poor person that wasn't about them being a poor person, right? You could tell any story, basically, with a person that wasn't super duper well off in suburban. But most of the movies we watch, most of the stories that we watch, well, guess who is the, the hero of the story? And what that does is it bolsters a notion that a suburban family in a three-story house with a white picket fence, 2.5 kids, two cars in the garage, good solid job, and healthcare is the norm. That's the norm. And pushing that as the norm makes these centrist types believe that, yeah, that is how people are living. That's what's regular. That also makes people who make less than that feel like that's regular and I'm not living up to that. Centrists are essentially irrelevant. I don't even say that with shade, even though I'm actively disdainful of centrists who don't help us fight for better things since they have more power. I don't say that with shade. But... If your life is okay and things are pretty good for you and you kind of don't care which way the wind blows, your opinion is irrelevant by nature, by default. And I don't mean that you shouldn't get to vote. Of course, everybody should get, literally everyone should get to vote. And that also includes people in prison, by the way, right? The punishment is the imprisonment. They shouldn't also not have a hand in shaping the society they will one day return to, right? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Unless, of course... You're trying to get their votes not to matter. Hmm, that, I wonder why that is. But here's another idea. There is a lot of framing in a lot of conversation about how divided our country is. I'm going to just say flat out that those who say we have a divided country are using a coded language. They're using a language which essentially means that 
the divisions, anything that seems like an aggressive or really, really strong point of view is to be looked at with scrutiny. That the divisions that exist in the country are, it's just too much. We needn't be so divided. And that that division is based on lines that are not important. But here's the thing. As I've said in previous episodes, our country is not divided on most of the issues which involve people having a better life. If it weren't for a hundred years of people basically shitting on communism and socialism, we would understand that obviously what is better for more people is the way a government should be run. And that what we have now is a nightmare. We are living under nightmarish conditions. And in Martin Luther King's day, it was easy to for white people to relegate those nightmarish conditions to the way black people were living because the conditions were were nightmarish, right? But even Martin Luther King includes white Appalachians and other poor white people and poor people in general in his messaging. Now, towards the end of his life, one of the reasons that he was so reviled was because he was angering these moderates and centrists. They were like, look, you got your, you got stuff for black people. You know, we got you Voting Rights Act. We got you a Fair Housing Act. Like, now you need to sit back. No, don't, don't start talking about how poor people need more money. Don't start talking out against the dangers of militarism. Don't start talking about the, those, the, the evils that naturally exist. There were three evils for Martin Luther King. Racism, militarism, and capitalism. It was not that race was the most important issue. And the things that keep the boot on the neck of the mass of people in this country is those three things working in concert. Not only did he understand that, but that is what he was truly, truly working against. Getting black people the right to vote was just the beginning of that. The way to build power, in a democratic society at least, the way to build power is by getting more people involved in the democratic process. And that is what he was seeking to do. The Poor People's Campaign, which he was about to lead before he was assassinated, and let's all just acknowledge for a second that there is just no way that there was not some sort of conspiracy involving his death, okay? I don't know what did happen, but I know what the fuck didn't happen, and that was just James Earl Ray wanting this guy dead. We know that the FBI considered him one of the greatest threats to America. We know they tried to get him to commit suicide. We know they were tap wiretapping him. We know that they thought of him as an enemy of the state. And when our government considers a person who is working for the rights of poor people as a greater and greater enemy of the state, what do you think that means about the state? Do you think that means the state cares about you just because you happen to be white? No. No, what it means is that they're going to keep smashing everyone they can, stomping on us like we were wine grapes to wring all the juices out of us. And yes, they will stomp the black people first, but they're going to stomp your poor ass too. And now more and more of us are poor and living precariously. More and more of us. So we need to absolutely reclaim the history of Martin Luther King because he was no less a hero than he is thought to be. In fact, he is much more of a hero than he has been given credit for being. Why are there only Martin Luther King Jr. streets in black neighborhoods, right? Poor white people who he was fighting for just as strongly should hold him up in the same light. He was not Malcolm X, who is also one of my personal heroes, but for very different reasons, right? He was a strong believer that integration was the only way that we were going to achieve a good and just world. And I also believe that. And that brings me to a, a thought on this. Black people who see Martin Luther King as a hero just for us and who believe in black isolation, I feel like you really need to rethink that. Because what our hero was telling us was that Everyone in this country, all combining forces to work against the three evils. That was the only way we were ever going to get peace. 
and to take it out of his way of thinking and into my own. Think about this. What happens every time in America when there is an isolated, segregated, black amount of wealth and power? Take Black Wall Street, for example, right? What happens? What has happened historically? Whenever we separate ourselves, we end up easily picked off, easily divided, or easily co-opted. Now, I am not by any stretch of the imagination saying that we don't need strong black communities and black representation and all that sort of stuff. We desperately do need that. Uh, but as Killer Mike says, when there's a stronger black community, the, the country itself is stronger. Every community needs to be strong and that all feeds into a stronger world and a stronger America. Now, if things are isolated, what does that mean? That means we are not working together. That means we are not sharing the culture that we all, all have and are all building. Let's keep it real. We all know that black culture is not only a giant part of what American culture is thought to be, but black culture is one of the prime exports of America. Everybody adopts black culture. I mean, everything from, you know, adopting the way we speak and our dances, et cetera, et cetera, but all kinds of aspects of American black culture and it's not just that, because that's, you know, one of the things that is often said about black people is that mostly what we contribute is entertainment and whatever. That's, that's obviously bullshit. That's not what I'm, what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that all cultures that live in this country are supposed to be aggregated. That's what makes the idea of this country good. And I don't care about this country in like a nationalistic way, like protect our borders and that kind of like, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the idea of a country where all these different people live and bring what they know and bring bits of their culture and bits of their ideas and we mix it together to create something better, that is the way that the future is going to be what we would like it to be and what we need it to be. Isolation and segregation are not the way to the future, not even in nature. In nature, biodiversity is what creates strong species. So relegating Martin Luther King's message to being just for the betterment of black people is, it is honestly erasing his real message. His real message was for all people. And that is why he is one of the people that has most inspired me and so many of you. But we need to take his legacy back into our own hands. People like Reverend Barber, who are continuing Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. This is the kind of person we should be listening to in terms of finishing the job that Martin Luther King started. Because unity, love, love is really the message. And it sounds kind of trite or whatever. And like I'm not, you know, in my personal life, I am not a very florid person in that regard. But, but I'm talking about humankind. Love, love is the message. And it's love for all people. And if you have hate in your heart for other people, there's something that you need to really look inside yourself and make change. Change it. And obviously, I'm talking to people who are in the power structure, but I'm also talking to people who are not. People who have been historically disenfranchised and who carry that hatred for understandable reasons. I understand. I understand why you feel the way you do. But to quote another over you saying, hating someone else is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Be angry, that makes sense. But to carry unfocused hatred at people that don't have anything to do with the reason that your life is the way that it is, that's literally what they are doing to poor white people and have been doing to poor white people since the American experiment began. And it's a trap and it's a trick and it's the kind of chicanery that is only going to keep us divided and easy to destroy. Look where we are now. Look at our president. Look at the conditions under which we live, right? We can be living better. We need to be living better. Let's take the message of Democratic Socialist Martin Luther King Jr. and figure out how to synthesize the good of everything we have learned before and make it into a new world and a new way. Let me paraphrase something I saw on the internet the other day in closing. When looking at the political system, 
and when looking at presidential candidates, and when looking at the politicians and the leaders that we most love, who do you think most embodies the messaging of Martin Luther King? I bet you know who that is. I bet it's not even close. If you don't stand behind the people who you know have the most love in their heart for their fellow humans, why are you not supporting them? Is it money? Is it power? Whatever it is, it's probably something selfish. And I'll tell you what, if you really think about it and you're still willing to fight against more people getting out from under the grip of fear, of, of terror that they won't be able to continue to feed themselves and their families, of fear that the climate is going to destroy us all. If you won't help, you need a change of heart and a change of mind. And you need to get on board with the rest of us because most of us want what's best for everyone. And if you don't, for some reason of your own, let me not get myself in trouble and I'll just say history will not look kindly upon you. And I sure as hell don't. That's going to bring us to the end of this episode. I hope you all enjoy uh, Martin Luther King Day off. Think about how you can contribute positively to us making the world literally better than it's ever been, because that's the underlying message. In this time of danger, there is the most tremendous capability for us to get to a world the quality of which humankind has not been able to muster with all the science that we have now, but with an underlying understanding that we have to protect people and with the ability to innovate and with the ability to use the internet and other means to communicate with those all around the world and share things, share culture, share love, share joy, share their individual stories. We have a chance to make a wonderful, wonderful world, but it's not gonna happen if we don't do the work. Saturn and Pluto, for a quick astrological message, they're in the same spot. It's the planet of change and the planet of structure. And right now they're talking to each other and they're saying, you know what? It's time for us to break down and rebuild. Something that's going to last until the next time we run into each other, which is not going to be for a very, very long time. Let's seize this unique opportunity. Let's not squander the only time and the only life we get. There is no more convenient season than the life we have right now. If you don't already, please do follow me on Instagram at Focused on Infinity. And please do like and share this podcast wherever you find it. I appreciate all of you listening. And I have some exciting news and some new advances coming for the podcast quite soon. And until then, Grendel out.